And I just had this moment where I was like standing in front of them going, so crazy that I was in this country and escaping the country. And now look how, look how much, uh, not only I have grown as part of that, but the country has grown and it, war has not been that long ago for the country and people are coming back together. And I just felt immense pride that it could have happened in just one generation that I could be a refugee in that country and then I could come back and be... Um, and help the country as well through their digital transformation with the work I do and help the people that work at Microsoft Vietnam um, really be successful. And I think that moment was like a true moment of like, I'm so hopeful for the future. That's right. I might have a story for you today. I'm Matt Levinson, and I first met Lynn Dang when I was working to raise funds for the UN Refugee Agency. Lynn was on the board of the Australian Operation, still is, and I was constantly impressed by her passion and steadying influence on the organisation. She's a tech leader with long stints at IBM and now at Microsoft, but although she started out as an IT developer, she quickly moved into HR and has had a meteoric rise over, you know, the likes of 18 years. But as I got to know Lynn more, I learned there was so much more, including her family's escape from Vietnam when she was four years old. As well as serving on the board of Australia for UNHCR, Lynn plays key mentorship and leadership roles in a range of orgs. CEO, Tech Girls Movement, Fitted for Work, Settlement Services International... She's passionate, focused, and has a really powerful influence. She's exactly the sort of person you'd hope would be shaping the talent pipeline for a major tech org. I've interviewed plenty of people over the years, but for whatever reason, I don't often ask all those nosy questions that I guess you ask when you're doing an interview. We're all surrounded by these great people making great things happen, and we don't often dig into why or what they've done beforehand to get there. With this podcast, I'm I'm doing that. I'm asking all those, you know, crazy questions, those impertinent questions that you probably wouldn't ask someone who you work with or you're friends with or whatever. You should have done it ages ago, but I'm doing it now. Lynn, thank you so much for saying yes to doing this. Hey, Matt. Thank you so much for having me and what an intro. Now I'm getting really nervous about the questions you're about to ask. It is so great to be here. We're in the offices of Microsoft in Sydney and it's a really funny place to ask you to like step way back but that's what I'm going to start with I really want you to I don't know I struggle with my earliest memory it's probably landing in late primary school or something when is your earliest memory you know my very first memory and you probably touched on it in the intro that you did there was actually at a refugee camp in Malaysia um, so like you had mentioned, uh, our family, my three sisters and I and mum and dad became refugees when I was four years old. And so we, my father was a soldier in the South Vietnamese army and obviously we had lost the war at the time. And so like many of the exodus of people who left Vietnam, our family did the same. And so we left in the middle of the night on a very sort of unseaworthy boat. Um, hundreds of people crammed into a boat. I don't remember that part of the journey um, but this is through the retelling of my family that I, I've learned through the years. And so we were there on crossing through the South China Sea for all about four days, I think three nights, and we landed at a camp. And the UNHCR had set up a camp there, and I think there were other people like the Red Cross. 
But my earliest memory was actually just uh, playing in the camp. Like I do remember camp life because you're just surrounded with family. And so playing in the camp and I had met um, other young children as well, Vietnamese children. So we were just playing around. And there's one memory that I keep asking my mother, did this really happen? Because was this a dream? But I was sleeping and there was a fly in my face and I saw like a foreign person, um, you know, not a Vietnamese person, taking a photo of me. And she said, yes, that was like a journalist who had visited the camp and took a photo of you while you were sleeping and there was a fly on your face and you were in temporary accommodation. So I do remember, that's my earliest memory. I was four years old, running around in a refugee camp, in the mud, um, in Malaysian Palau Badong camp. What would you be playing when you're running around? You know, I don't even remember. I think like whenever it rained, we would like just run in the rain. It was so freeing and so fun and also... When we, I assume, when we were in Vietnam, we didn't have, we didn't do that. Like now that we're in a camp, literally all the adults just let the children do whatever to occupy their time. And of course, for the adults, I understand the gravity of the situation there. They were thinking, what will happen now? Yes, we've been really fortunate. We've landed in a camp and we've got clean drinking water and we've got clothes. But actually, they're thinking about the future. Where will our family live now? Obviously, we cannot live in a camp for um, a long time. So I think pretty much the children were just left to our own devices. So we were just making friends and running around. And I remember like pulling weeds and taking rocks and um, drawing things on the ground and jumping around as children do. As a parent now and, um, you know, I, I know you take great pride in, in your child's you know, um, you know, upbringing and their sense of fun and all that kind of stuff, you know, said all over your socials and, you know, what have you. Do you ever reflect on what it must have taken for your parents to kind of create that environment for you? That was, you know, that the thing that you remember about that time was having fun and playing. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, I actually did a, an interview last year uh, with publication just talking about that, like the, how my mother was my hero. Um, and how I emulate my parenting on her courage and just how do you create? I mean, that is probably, I, I would say it was probably the toughest thing that she had to do, right? Leave her, leave her home country. And then how did she create? And she had three, four children with her, our four girls. And, you know, my sister was a baby at the time and I was four and she had teenagers. My, my elder sisters were a little older. How did she keep us, like, not from complete stress and anxiety um, and herself, like, together around that and my dad as well but my dad had just come from the war so he was dealing with many um, things as well but yeah so I think she really really grounded us like to say hey like we may not know the future and the past um, you know we cannot control but what we control is the fact that we're all together we're safe now Um, we just have to live each moment day by day we have to have a sense of gratitude around it and and so I think for now when I think about my parenting I really ground my children in gratitude Um, even during the pandemic we used to do these gratitude exercises every night we'd write all of us three things that we're really um, grateful for today and of course for the children it's like mum let us have ice cream and we had unlimited screen time (laughs) all the important stuff same with mine (laughs) But yeah, but I think that really stems from uh, how my mother raised us to say, hey, um, these extraordinary things happen outside of your control, but the things that you can control is your reaction to it and the environment and that you create around for the family. Your family, as you said, your mum, your dad and your three sisters received humanitarian visas um, to resettle in Australia at that point. Every family has a sort of a mythology to their families. Uh, 
you know, what, what sort of place does that have in the kind of story of your family? Is it something that is talked about a lot? Is it something that is, you know, has only been, you know, started to be dug up recently? How, how does that play out in your family? Yeah, we've always talked about it. Um, and even now when we talk, I mean, we were, uh, even as we were going through that journey, like I remember my parents telling me it's the Fraser government that is allowing us to have these humanitarian visas, even from a young age. So I think we always talked about it. And even as we were growing up, we talked about political events that were happening around. We talked about Vietnam even before the war. Um, and so I think for our family, um, and like you said, it's it's a big thing to have the whole family come together. And some generations you have, you know, the parents coming to a country and then the children being born in that country and how that could... But we were a family that all came together at the same time, obviously at various stages in our life, like my sister was a baby. But we grew up through that and we moved through that. And actually when we first landed in Australia, we still joke as a family and as we share that it was actually Queensland that we landed in. There was a migrant centre there. So I call myself a, a Queenslander, <laughs> even though obviously now um, we're in Sydney. But And we eventually moved to Sydney where the Vietnamese community was to, to get the support that we needed um, as refugees when we first came. But yeah, I think it's... Um, We've always talked about it, even now when my parents, um, you know, they do English lessons and they do dancing lessons and they share their story. What they often say is, we're so grateful that we were able to come to Australia as a family. And that's where their journey starts. Like often they don't start the journey with, I was here in Vietnam. The journey as a family actually started in Australia. Wow. After that time in Brizzy, came down to Sydney and settled in Glebe, right? We actually first settled in Marrickville. Okay. Yeah, we, we eventually got public housing in Glebe and that's where I grew up and went to Glebe Primary School, which is a wonderful school um, and taught me a lot. But yes, we were in Marrickville first. Must have been so different then to what it's like now. I mean, it's oh, yeah. basically part of the city now. It is. It is. It wasn't then, I can tell you that. It wasn't then. So, What, what was your feeling first arriving? I mean, it must, have, it must have been a bit of culture shock to just, to, I mean, landing in Brisbane first, then Marrickville, ultimately Glebe. What it, just practically speaking, what was it like? Yeah, complete culture shock. So when you first come to a country and you don't speak the language, you have no friends, um, no family, um, you really become really close as a family. And I do think that even now we're so close as a family. Like, thankfully, my parents are still alive, all of us. And so we still get together. On, you know, when I first landed here from Singapore, the first thing we did was like go to my mum's place and mum cooked up the big bowl of fur and everybody came in and over for it and... And when we're all together, we meet for weekly dinners. But the first, yeah, it's, I I was so young that I don't think I appreciated how tough it was for my parents and even for my older sisters who were teenagers at the time to go into a school system to think about how are we going to, um, you know, make money, how are we going to pay rent? And so uh, my father picked up a trade as uh, at the time because like most migrant communities that move over, you talk to the community that support you and that's why we eventually moved down um, to Marrickville because there was a, a vibe of a Vietnamese-like community there. Yep. And someone said to my dad, come work for my bakery. And so he took up a new trade as a baker and mum stayed home and looked after the four girls and we all went to public um, schooling and eventually we moved into public housing. And I think for us, and it's something that I'm truly passionate about, is how much you need safety nets for uh, vulnerable people, right? People who are from lower socioeconomic, whether it's public housing, public health care, um, public education, to really allow them to achieve social mobility um, 
for for themselves and their children. And I think yeah, so uh, so we eventually moved to Glebe, and then we you know my dad worked for various bakeries, and that's how we were able to pay rent. And we moved to public housing, and then eventually dad opened his own bakery, and mum and dad worked there for a very long time. So those are some of my memories of the childhood. You know, I had Lee Tran Lam, who is a food writer on the show, uh, you know, a few episodes ago, and. We were talking about her experiences growing up in Cabra um, with her, you know, actually working part-time in her in her dad's shop. Did you ever find yourself doing that, you know, working crazy hours? Yeah. <laughs> like my uh, – so my dad, I just – when I think about like earliest memories of dad growing up in Australia, he was just covered in white. He was covered in flour. That's all I remember. And he would sleep at the bakery. And the, we, so our bakery was in Ashfield. And he, there was a room in the back and there was a bed set up, a futon set up, and he would often sleep there because as a baker, you have to start at like one or two in the morning. And some days it just didn't make sense to go home. And I eventually just used to catch the bus up Parramatta Road and down Liverpool Street and get off and then go work uh, with my dad after school because it's the only time I could get to see my parents. And then on the weekends, we would wake up very early on a Saturday morning, like four in the morning, go to the bakery, the three sisters, and we would set it up and we'd work there for the full day. And so even when we think about um, just the time we spent with our parents was at their work. Um, And so, you know, I learned how to roll croissants and I learned how to do bun mies and all those things at a very young age. And in many ways, it's kind of shaped my work ethic Um, as I've been working in the corporate world, um, and in some ways it's good and bad, like I've had to learn how to have better work-life boundaries because I don't need to work that hard, Um, but that's the the migrant work ethic that I grew up with um, and just for like just to pay the bills. Yeah, I love, I love also that you were so sort of embedded in this kind of culture of making food there and, and the bum me. You're one of the other things that I um, that came up when I was talking with Lee Tran um, was, you know, that she would be um, eating this food that, um, you know, was being made by a family and she would be like, oh, I don't want that. I just want a McDonald's in Cabramatta. I don't want all of this. And obviously she feels very differently about it right now. But, you know, when you went off to school, you know, like did you have that kind of classic experience that so many migrants have that they're pulling out their lunchbox and it looks a bit different to like the Vegemite sandwiches or Devon sandwiches that other kids are having? Did you did you have to go through that thing as well? Look, I think every mi- <coughs> migrant kid in Australia had to go through that <laughs> and it's a story I often tell when I, I'm explaining a concept that we call, call covering at Microsoft. But essentially, yes. So I would open – when when you're a – when you're an incredibly poor refugee kid who's just landed in the country and you're going to school, you already feel very different in the classroom. And then you get to the social events where you're opening up your lunchbox and you, you're made to feel even more different. And I know kids when they ask and they say, what is it that you're eating? It's not malicious, but you already stand out. And I remember just thinking, I just want to fit in. Like, I do not want to stand out more than I already do. And food is one aspect. And also, I was not a very athletic kid, so it's quite nerdy and I want to spend my time in the library. So there are so many aspects of my personality that made me already, um, you know, stand out and not fit into the norm. And growing up in Australia in the 80s and 90s, there was just a strong sense of if you're different, you need to fit in. You need to assimilate, like a word was assimilation. And we had things like tolerance days. So we would tolerate you if you assimilated. And those were the connotations that were part of that. So I know some aspects of it is that kids do want to fit in. That's normal. But I do think there were cultural aspects that were at play as well. That's why, you know, every migrant kid 
went home to their mum and I was no different to say, mum, just make me a sandwich. Like, please do not make me a spring roll or, you know, those delicious Vietnamese rice paper rolls. And like you say, it's completely opposite now. Like when I go home, I'm like, please make me all the delicious food that, you know, I really need to eat um, and really enjoy. When you went off to school, you know, you ended up at Fort Street High, which, um, you know, it's one of the kind of iconic Sydney schools. And somehow you went from that point of being the, you know, introverted kid in primary school through to studying information systems and business at uni. What happened along the way? Were you into computers? Like what, 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 like what got you into that? Because this is, you know, like, oh, well. Yeah. The, um, so, yes, I was always a nerdy kid and I loved computers. So even in primary school, I was, whenever a computer went down, like a desktop, massive desktop went down, it was like, where's Lynn? And I would go in and fix it. And I don't know. I mean, I really like, I do have an analytical side of my brain where I think how do things work and, you know, how do we fix it? So um, so that was the aspect. And then so when I was going through school, I was always the early adopter. I was actually reading Edward Snowden's book, uh, like last year, I think. And he was talking about like um, internet relay chat rooms and um, all those things that people were doing early adopters when I was one of those people, like early adopters. And so I think that's also why I do use a lot of socials now because... It, it seems feel it feels relatively easy to me to do, um, but yes. So I was always interested in tech, and then as I but of course with my grandparents, the thing that they really wanted me to do was like be a doctor or be a lawyer, and so I really had to fight to be. Hey, this is my passion area. And as we were going through Fort Street, and Fort Street is such a phenomenal school. Like I had met so many incredible people, and I really found my people. Um, but also they really taught me how to be more authentic, like how to not have to cover aspects of my identity to fit in um, and really taught us about social justice and, you know, using your voice for good, not only finding your voice, but how you use it is really important and being intentional about that. So I was taught all of those things, but my passion for the tech industry was always very strong. So, of course, you know, as soon as I went to uni, I did a tech uh, and I kind of did the slash business to keep my parents happy, but I always knew I was going to move into a tech company or at least start one or work for a big one. I love that idea. Um, you know, like I guess at that time, every teenager is wanting to belong and particularly if you've gone through what you'd gone through before then, that's sort of amplified on on a typical teenager. You know, the I remember when I first discovered those kind of IRC chats and you know message boards and all that kind of thing it just being a revelation of connecting to this whole world were you into hardware as well were you like you know breaking things down were you doing all that kind of stuff with computers like were you just trying to understand yes yes completely and actually I, I remember saying to my sister do you mind if I break like can I take apart the computer and put in extra storage and just have a look around and she's like don't you dare and I did it when she was at school so really naughty but I did do that and actually one of my first jobs at IBM was actually fixing all our servers when servers went down the hardware part when people's laptops went down we didn't have cloud services then so it was just um, storage and in putting those in and recovering people's hard drives and that was really fun. I wish I had time to do more of that now. <laughs> but that was some of my my favourite memories of like early, early internet before. Actually, early, soft, not even software at that time. It was like Windows 95. I don't know if you all remember <laughs> the big boxes around how exciting that was. Or even playing like, um, you know, uh, what it was, Solitaire, <laughs> Minesweeper. <laughs> Was it what was it like um, coming out of your degree and going? You you went pretty much straight into IBM, right? Yes. What was it like landing in that? I, I guess when we think about big tech companies, there's the two sort of dominant paradigms at the moment are 
the nerdy old school computing company and and IBM would be like one of those absolutely legacy huge computing companies they've been around right since the early days and on the other side you got the MIT Stanford grad startup silicon valley culture really you know broy and all that kind of thing what was it actually like for you when you landed at IBM as a new grad yeah, it was, well, first of all, I was so excited. I was like, wow, I've landed my dream job. Like, why have they hired me? And as you say, IBM or Big Blue, as it's affectionately called, is like 100 to 10 years old. Like, I don't know if you know, but like Ben Stiller's dad used to work for IBM. And the reason I know that is Ben Stiller is a global ambassador for UNHCR. So I thought it was really funny when I was reading that up about him. But it's existed for as a... Um, this massive, you know, uh, a presence in the IT industry. And as you say, now there's like Silicon Valley and all the startups coming out and when social media, like the Facebooks of the world were coming through, that's a different kind of culture as well. But I uh, I was very excited and of course, very grateful to have this awesome job. Um, and uh, I was very few females because it was like true um, tech hardware. So I remember thinking, wow, there's not a lot of like, well, one, there's just yeah, not a lot of females in my team. And then there wasn't a lot of females in leadership positions and it wasn't something that I was totally conscious about as I am now. Like that's what drives a lot of my work now, just diversity in the tech industry in general. But I remember just thinking, yeah, it's a little strange. Um, and then over time, you know, that allowed me to move into areas where I could think about fixing the, the systemic uh, representation issues of the tech industry. Yeah, it's so great and, and obviously so deeply needed. Um, you know, when I was at that point in my career, I looked at the structures of workplaces and might have been curious about them. But I feel like there's been such a paradigm shift in, you know, kids who are coming out of uni now, seeing those kind of things. They're like, this is terrible. This has got to change. I, I feel like I would have been just like deeply grateful to be in a job and been like, well, that's a bit weird, but you know, I've got to deal with it. That's a good thing, isn't it? The way that sort of sense of no I'm not going to accept it oh yeah I love that yep. I love that and I, I'm, I'm in some ways it took me uh, like almost 20 years in the industry to be thinking about change now because like you when I you know we were just super grateful to have a job right and, and our dream job but not really looking at it with a critical lens and over time and as you're embedded in the system you realize okay you know there are some things fundamentally that we may need to change and now we have uh, you know more even if I look at um, the workforce globally and we like we do a lot of surveys at Microsoft to make sure to get a sense, especially since the pandemic, because hybrid work is something that is really um, creeping up, up a lot of our customers and ourselves included. But also just not only is it what and where people work and why uh, or how people work, but actually what's really important to people is why they're working and who they're working for. And so we have more employee activism, which is actually not a bad thing because that's how we create change. And I think when you're in the system, um, ultimately, and at Microsoft we often talk about it with our leaders, is we, we are the change, like we are the system. <laughs> and so to make systemic changes for our company and for our industry, we have to be that change. And I think some of that is taught to us as well. We're learning so much from a generation that's coming through to say, I just, I'm just not going to accept it. Like we need to change. And, and I love that. I love that energy. I love that passion. I'm really inspired by it. And it's helped me as well carve out a career where I can feel really proud about the, the platform and the privilege that I have and the power that I have to really be part of that change. You kind of alluded to it a moment ago, Lynn, but 
you landed at IBM in this IT specialist kind of role and within about a year or two, by my reckoning, had, had moved straight into this kind of more people-focused, talent-sort-of-focused role. Did that happen, was that an opportunistic thing or was that something, you know, you were saying before that you saw all these kind of structural issues. Was it, you know, the stuff that you'd learned at Fort Street about actually, you know, using your power and making the change? That you, what, what drove you to that? shift because it's a really significant shift in your career that has in completely shaped what you're doing now yeah yeah completely I think it, it was a, a a bit of everything I think there was acknowledgement from my part to say look I'm I'm really great at like hardware and software but actually I'm not sure whether this will be where I will have most impact in my career but then I also had really great um, managers who said, hey, like you're good at your job, but actually have you thought about being more on the people side of our business because you, you, know, you know how to listen to people, you know how to coach, you know how to think about bigger people aspects. And as an introverted kid and, you know, when you feel like an outsider, I never really thought my people skills were my strengths, honestly. I really felt it was like my technical skills were my strengths. And it took me to get into the workforce and to have good mentors and sponsors to say, hey, this is probably a part of your strength you didn't realise you had. And so, yeah, and so that allowed me then to explore my first role, which was around um, workforce planning and looking at um, big workforce changes that were happening at the time and oil and gas at the time was really big so we were building out a WA office and looking strategically at that and then obviously that comes into hiring and looking at your grad intake, looking at professional hiring, looking at um, our contingent staff for workforce and yeah and then over time it just I just moved into more and more people oriented and culture roles. I often think that you know it takes going through some tough things to like develop empathy I'm not saying that everyone who has empathy has been through tough things, not not at all. Um, but a lot of the people who are most skilled at, at it are people who've been through some tough times. How much do you think that, you know, that really tough experience at the start of your life um, kind of gave you some of those sort of tools to, to step into that space in a really effective way? Yeah, I think it's honestly everything. Like if I if I ever wrote a book of my life story, I think so much of it will be at the start of how that has influenced what I do in my professional, my personal life as well. And like you say, it's going through those tough things and really understanding, hey, this is the lived experience of someone who may be, you know, who may not have all the advantages in life that say my children have, and they go through that and um, you know, whether it's not being able to pay the bills or having to worry about, like, how are my parents going? They've gone through a tough thing. It's a burden that you wear as a child when you're you're thinking about that, how are they landing in the country? And I just remember when we were younger, we were talking to Centrelink on the phone as a 10-year-old because my parents couldn't speak the language and I was probably the best English speaker in the family at that point. And I just thought... You know, I, I just did it because it was naturally, but when you do the reflection as an adult, you're like, yeah, that is a huge thing for a kid to have to do, right? Like they don't need to, you know, they should just be at school. They shouldn't be worrying about keeping the family's finances running or making sure that the systems were helping the family. So I think that level of empathy um, was developed through lived experience. Um, uh, and then I think also just feeling like an outsider growing up, I think that has really given me a... Uh, just an acute sense of how other people may be feeling it so even if I'm sitting in a meeting and I see someone quiet or not talking I just wonder do they feel included and is there something that I can do to create an inclusive sort of environment for them that so that they can share what's on their mind or they can feel this 
the space that they belong in in this room and it could be like a senior leadership meeting room and you know they they may feel different and and I also think some of this is uh, I think in the tech industry we're very good about maybe visible differences but there are so many things that are invisible differences and diversities that exist whether it's where someone you know grew up um, the family environment they're in, any disabilities they have, the socioeconomic class they come from, all these factors that we just don't know. And so, and it plays such a huge part in them um, there. Yeah, so, so I think back to your question, yes, I, I think some of it is driven by the fact that I know what it's like to completely feel left out or completely like I don't belong. And then how do I create that space so that people can feel that they can belong and that they're empowered to, to do what they want to do? And I guess as you, as you were saying before, you know, when people are experiencing that, they're quite often actively trying to cover it as well. Yes. You know, and so it can be really hard to see through to, you know, why that's happening. About five years ago, you left IBM, went off to Microsoft, another, you know, tech juggernaut. And right at the start or, or pretty early on, you took time out to study at Cornell and to do the company director's course. Given everything that's happened since then, just the kind of crazy roller coaster that we've been through with COVID and what have you, it seems really prescient that you sort of took this time out to reflect and build your knowledge and all that kind of stuff. But at the time, you know, was it a, was it an easy decision to do those things? Was it something that was mandated as part of the new job? Was it like how did you how did you wind up doing those things? Yeah, I think it's always important to for, for me anyway um, to have like a sense of curiosity and just keep learning regardless of what job I'm in and so some of it is um, the company's director's course was because I had just started this board um, became a board director for Australia for UHCR and I wanted to always add value or think about ways that I can keep myself um, you know informed and so I did that the eCornell course was I saw some gaps in where I thought about systems thinking and some other things that I just wanted to develop in myself so I'm always thinking about like where can I develop and and continue to do that and just keep learning and I just enjoy it as well. Yeah, it's it's the best. Keep you on learning. Um, you couldn't have known at that time, but we were just about to enter this just incredibly turbulent time with the COVID pandemic hitting. That was a time that really, I mean, it 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 tested us all, but it really tested HR. Right? How did that hit you professionally? You know, it was really when I reflect back on it, I was so calm. Like, um, so I, I don't know if um, um, you're, well, I, I know you're aware, Matt, but not, not everyone listening to this may be aware. But right before the pandemic, I had moved from my family from Sydney to Singapore to relocate for a role to be um, head of sort of the HR leader for Microsoft Singapore. And we have about 1,400 employees there. And that was in January 2020. And we were still in a temporary accommodation. We had just sent out, we were looking at schools in the country and the children just started going to school. And then March, we moved into our new condo. And then literally the week after, everybody went through lockdown. So we were just kind of, um, yeah, just completely like a new country in this new rhythm that we hadn't really settled in yet. And this happened. And I just remember feeling like, okay, uh, Let's, let's help like our children through this and my husband through this, but also like let's help my organisation through this because what had happened was the Singapore government had closed the borders, so we had employees all over the place. And I remember just sitting like we had, you know, every day we had to have a morning sync with our whole leadership team just to see where are our people at, what do, what do we need to help people. Um, and I was just so calm. 
I was just like, okay, here we go. And, you know, I was very structured, like this is what we need to do. This is who needs to do what. This is what where we need to reach out. You know, this is the biggest risk for our people here. How do we communicate that at scale? What's the anxiety that's coming through the system? What information do we have? What information don't we have? And let's process that and communicate it in a way that creates um, a bit of calm in the chaotic world that was, you know, we were all going through. And I remember... Uh, thinking, oh, well, you know, during the time it was fine. Like I didn't feel any sense of uh, stress or anxiety at the time. And I realised that actually I do really well under stressful situations, like really creating that calm. And I think it comes back to like your earlier question is I think I learned that as a child, like, you know, going through a lot of uncertainty. How do you create certainty from uncertainty? But how do you get through those tough periods um, in a way? Because uh, you can only control that moment. And seeing your mum you know, um, create that safe space for you guys to have fun as kids and to still have a really, like, have great memories of childhood. And also, I guess, that arriving in Brisbane and then Glebe and, you know, compacting down to the family unit and having that safe space must have been really similar to, in, in a weird way, to landing in Singapore and suddenly it's just your family, you're doing work but it's by phone (laughs) yes yes and the kids have ipads and other things that can keep them occupied but yes um but yeah it was that and i think it just helping the organization like microsoft singapore go through that as well i think when um you know i don't need a lot of certainty to help create clarity for our people and i think being able to get a pulse on how they're feeling what's the anxiety levels what are some of the things that they want to hear from their leaders and being able to work with the leadership team to send that out to our people we're now in this really weird moment where, you know, Elon Musk is making news for telling his employees to come back to the office or face the sack. Um, and plenty of others are, are sort of, you know, testing points right along the spectrum. One of the first media mentions I could dig up for you was this CNN story from 2013 where you were, you know, reporters calling out Yahoo for something really similar to that. Um, you know, and I guess that was like, you know, there was a long way back on the flexible working trend. Yes. But you were like ready to make these quite bold statements then. What do you feel about where we're at? Because I feel like that's the big question that everyone's saying, you know, trying to think about at the moment, are we are we set for a permanent reset of the experience of flexible working and hybrid working and what have you? Or are we going to start to swing back to something that kind of resembles what we used to do? What mm. do you reckon? I reckon there are some people who want us to swing back <laughs> and I think they're holding on to that. But I think all the the trends that we see, certainly at Microsoft and that I, and like you said, even back in 2013, I was a huge advocate for flexible work. And the reason for that is I do think that, and this came back to what I talked about, about women in the workforce. If we want to include more women in the workforce, we have to make sure we have flexible work practices um, around. And so that was the 2013 statement, a bit, a bit more around that. But I think now with COVID and the fact that everybody worked from home or wherever it was for two years and it was still successful shows that there's a disruption that's happening um, in how we think about where people should be working and what they should be working on and how they're working. So I think um, for us, I think it definitely hybrid work is the future. I think for, and it can't be for every profession. So for example, we obviously have like retail stores where we're selling out, um, we're selling surface products and so people are there. But I think for, but that's that's really those targeted industries. Um, But for most people who are office workers or I think that it works for them. 
And I think, as you see, you probably hear about the great resignation or the great reshuffle, people will work with their feet to what works for them. Not only are they thinking about, you know, where they're working, how they're working, what they're working on, they'll think about why they're working too. And if companies aren't listening to the workforce and, you know, I've, I've led um, talent acquisition teams in both companies and I can tell you that uh, where talent is in high demand, they will have that choice and they will vote with their feet. So I think there is a shift that's happening. I think it's one of the biggest disruptions and I think many organisations are grappling on how to deal with that um, because they may not have the infrastructure or the resources to support it, but they may also not have the culture yet or the leadership to support it. And I think that's where a lot of the work that I do now is, um, and our company, Microsoft, because we are obviously a collaboration um, company as well, tools company as well, and a lot of our products is a to have these hybrid workspaces um, but I didn't think for most people I don't think it's one dogma for to be replaced by the other so I think there will be some instances where someone or um, parts of an organization may always just remotely work and it could work but I do think there for most of us it's going to be a hybrid of both so there will be days we may be in the office and that's where the team will collaborate will innovate will think about why should people be coming together and the reasons uh, and how that we facilitate that. And then there will be days where people just go off and do their thing. And it could be you know, three days. Like for each person, it's going to be very different. But I think providing people with that flexibility gives them, them a level of empowerment. And, you know, like we said, there were people coming into our workforce who say, I'm not here just to do work. I want my work to be something more than what I do at a you know normal day to day. But I'm also really interested in things outside of work, and I'm going to want to do that. And I think if we can create that space for people to do those things, I think people will be happier at work. But also, I think uh, just purely from a business sense, you're going to great attract you know attract talent to come work for you. Yeah, and it's it's so competitive at the moment for that talent. You know, one of the things that um, that I think has been really interesting is there's been this massive shift in the kind of culture around diversity and inclusion. It's become like a core kind of um, capability in HR and a lot of companies are really grappling with it. And it hasn't always been that way, definitely, but it feels like there's been a real paradigm shift. There's a stack of goodwill towards, you know, making change in that area. But for a lot of people, it's still not working, right? Like they're still seeing a lot of orgs where they're really investing deeply and yet people are really struggling. And we've seen a few examples in in the media, in some big media organisations, um, which are, I guess, companies where it's more likely you're going to hear about the problems within the organisations because they're really vocal staff members who have a platform already. So we can only assume that that is probably replicated in a lot of other organisations. What is it, what are the big obstacles that you see to actually making workplaces, places where people feel, you know, where they feel like they belong, I guess, where they feel like they can thrive and do great work and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, I think for, and I'll also just speak about the tech industry because that's what I know and, and maybe it's applicable to other um, organisations and industries as well. But I think for the work that we do around diversity and inclusion, I think for a lot of the time, it's always been on the diversity part, which is, okay, let's look at talent pipelines, like maybe girls in tech at a young age, let's bring them in and grow that pipeline. Let's look at um, diversity. And thankfully now, I mean, I know when I first started in the tech industry, when we talked about diversity, we just met women and men 
and that was it. And thankfully, we've moved and progressed to a stage now where we're talking about things like intersectionality and privilege and all those other wonderful you know, aspects that uh, have come into the vocabulary at um, corporations. And, and so you know, even when I speak to employees now, we go through those concepts and we really double-click down on what it means. But I think that has really created that space to not just talk about diversity but move into the inclusion part which is actually the more important bit. Because, for example, when I was growing up, yes, I'm a very different type of person, but if I didn't feel included, I just would not talk, you know, speak up, and I would just conform. And all the richness that comes with the diverse experience isn't explored. And we know, like, we don't need to, uh, hopefully we don't need to talk about all the statistics that show you if you have a diverse um, workforce and you're having diversity of thought and lived experiences coming in all your products are more innovative and all your financial returns are actually higher than, um, you know, your peers in the same industry who aren't as diverse. So there's good reasons to have diversity on boards, diversity in leadership teams, diversities in all your teams. But I think the inclusion part is where we're grappling with how do we create the space that when you bring in diverse um, talent that they are their authentic self, that they're sharing, that, you know, we're challenging each other, we're really innovating together. And I think that's the bit that we're still grappling with and maybe... Um, you know, it's uh, some of it, for example, like I always laughed when um, there was the Sheryl Sandberg like lean in movement. And at the time I was really critical of it because I said, hey, that's not truly fixing the system, though. We're still asking women to do the hard work of leaning in, you know, be more, uh, I don't know, assertive at work or ask for that pay rise. But not understanding that actually a lot of women I know were already doing that. I'm mm. sure, you know, and, and that hasn't significantly shifted the dialogue because we were still putting that burden on the group that is marginalised or oppressed, right? And thinking about systemic change, like how do we actually change the system? And a really good example when I was um, the talent acquisition lead at, at Microsoft in Australia was instead of, and so for example, job ads, right? We know from the data that uh, women will screen themselves out. Um, They'll look at a job ad and if they don't meet all the technical requirements, they will screen themselves out. So instead of asking, whereas whereas men, if they see one item, they'll be like, <laughs> "Yes, that's me. I'll learn the rest." Right? Yes, yes, effectively. Um, but and so you know, we were, so we had all these coaching circles for women, like women, don't screen yourself out, and don't you know, don't you know, you don't have to do everything. And and then I said, why don't we just rewrite our job ads? Then we don't have to tell women to do these things and we ourselves just make them less technical. Like, let's just describe the person that we want for the organisation and not just the technical aspects, but all the skills that you're looking for. And so really, like, challenge the team to, like, do that differently. And so we did that and, of course, that helped us. And then the other thing is, um, like, creating that space to say that, like, explicitly to say, I know some people don't like this because they say you're... Um, you know, creating an environment where only women apply. But I say, no, we want to explicitly call out underrepresented groups to say that you are welcome to apply because we need to do that to really... um, And so we did that. And so, yeah, so I think in my thinking around it is... That inclusion part, we're still just grappling as an industry. I mean, even representation is um, still we're still dealing with that. And if I look at big tech, it's still like loud voices from the same people. And I think that's where we need to create the space. So it's all coming together. Um, I'm hoping that change is going to be far more accelerated in the next 18 years of my career than it was the past 18 years. But I think we're getting to a point where, like you say, there's good dialogue around it and goodwill and good intentions and people coming in saying. This, this is not good enough and let's make the change. And I think now it's really making sure that the, system, we're ma- the changes we're making are systemic and it's happening with the people in power, the people with the platforms to do those changes as well. You know, it must be uh, pretty great 
in some ways, you know, like you're 20 years or so into your career, you know, you started, you rocked up to IBM and you didn't see, you know, women in, in, you know, um, leadership roles and probably not that many women at all in that industry at the time. 20 years later, you are, you yourself are a senior executive in one of those large tech companies helping shape that pipeline of talent that is coming into one of the, you know, the dominant companies. You're also on the board of Australia for UNHCR. Again, you know, like you were four years old in a UNHCR camp. What is it like to reflect now? I mean, because you, you must be going through a really literal experience of reflecting it. First thing, you're working in Singapore and have oversight for Vietnam in that, in that role. You're in your role as a board member for Australia for UNHCR, you're actually visiting refugee camps as this kind of global leader. What is it like for you to, to do that? You know, it really gives me a lot of hope like I always, I actually feel like I'm truly a successful person, not because of the work that I do, but actually I, I have a really great family and, and you know, I don't have to worry about um, what we're going to eat for dinner. Like I have a job that pays me well. So all those little things like I'm really grateful for, that's how I define success. So, I, you know, we have a house in Sydney. I think that's like crazy <laughs> to think, right, to, to come from that. But, but I think the bigger picture stuff, when I zoom out and I think from a macro level, the, the other month I was in uh, Da Nang, Vietnam, giving a presentation to um, all our Vietnamese customers and partners about hybrid work, just what we're talking about. And I just had this moment where I was like standing in front of them going, so crazy that I was in this country and escaping the country. And now look how, look how much, uh, not only I have grown as part of that, but the country has grown and it, war has not been that long ago for the country and people are coming back together and I just felt immense pride that it could have happened in just one generation that I could be a refugee in that country and then I could come back and be um, and help the country as well through their digital transformation with the work I do and help the people that work at Microsoft Vietnam um, really be successful and I think that moment was like a true moment of like I'm so hopeful for the future um, from a philosophical level and then like you say the board work I was in Uganda right before the pandemic visiting the refugee women there and hearing their stories and their heartbreaking stories but they're also incredibly inspiring stories of courage and resilience stories like that my mother and they were creating that space for their children so I think um, I'm always like an optimistic hopeful person and I always laugh because I don't think it's like a toxic um, positivity it's more of a hard-fought optimism see that in the world and, and so I think that's what drives my work to continue to push actually I, I'm not happy with the the progress that we have now we have over a million people globally displaced that's the latest figure we're recording this quite close to refugee week and world refugee day and I think there's so much more work that we need to do both in the short term and long term um, but I'm committed as part of that change and I know that I get to meet incredible people who are also part of that journey and I think, yeah, that, that's what gives me that hope and optimism, um, Matt. And it's, um, yeah, just a, it's still a part of my story and we're still writing that story. I can't wait to read the full story when you get to it, Lynn. <laughs> um, we're just about finished. I've got three really quick questions for you. Um, I want to straight off the top of your head. Um, what's keeping you up at night at the moment? Climate change. 
Yeah, truly, it's it's what's keeping my children up at night as well. They actually recently became vegetarian, um, and our family became vegetarian at home because they're just so concerned about it, and they're ten and eight. And I'm and I wish that our generation had done more, um, but that's the thing that really it will displace people. It's going to be more um, crucial than any economic like crises we think we're going through. And I just do not think that we have the. Uh, the focus that we need as a global community, the political will, um, and it's coming through grassroots levels of community and we're seeing more of it, but I just am so concerned that we're not moving fast enough. Who else should I be speaking to? Zoe Ghani, because right here we have her book here in front of us and she is an uh, incredible tech leader working at Atlassian now, was the CTO of the Iconic. She was a fellow board member and her journey from being an Afghan refugee growing up. I mean, I yeah, she's just an incredible thinker, inspiring person that you should talk to. Yeah, I would love to. And I, I love her um, sort of authentic leadership approach as well. There's something really special there. I would love to do that. Last question, what's giving you hope? So much, so much. Like I think there's uh, – my children give me hope. Um, that generation gives me hope. Uh, I think the – you know, my mother's fur gives me hope. Like, I think there's just so, like, sometimes there's just so many beautiful things in our daily life um, that give me hope, honestly. I love that. Lynn, it has been so great to be able to spend all this time with you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Matt. I like following you on Twitter and on various socials, but what's the best place if people want to find out about your work, the things that you do, where would you send them? Uh, probably LinkedIn. And I don't say that just because it's a Microsoft company as well, but uh, a lot of people come up to me and say, I saw you did that thing on LinkedIn and it's a really great platform for connecting. Obviously, I'm in the business world, so that's where that's where it's best to connect with me. Get to LinkedIn, LinkedIn um, Lynn Dang on LinkedIn. This was produced and hosted by me, Matt Levinson. If you haven't heard the previous interviews in the series, I really recommend you dig back in. Um, the first one with Nick Robinson really actually dug into his um, sunglasses company was formed with his little boy in response to their worries about climate change. Um, we've had Lee Tran Lam, Kayleen Miller, Milner, um, Cam Webb. They've all got incredible stories and I just had a blast talking to them. I really recommend you listen to it. Let me know what you think. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram, LinkedIn, whatever. Um, find me at Matt underscore Levinson. I would love to know what you think. If you love the podcast, make sure you subscribe to it. And um, I'll look forward to um, bringing you another story very soon. I might have a story for you.